Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. As regular listeners to Raise the Line know, we've had the pleasure of speaking with a number of the researchers at the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research about the many studies underway there to determine the potential uses of those compounds for mental health treatment. All that research depends on having successful psychedelic-assisted therapy sessions with study subjects. Understanding what goes into those sessions and what is involved in facilitating them is our focus today. We could not have a better guest for this than Mary Cosimano, who is Director of Guide and Facilitator Services at the Center. Since the genesis of psilocybin research at Johns Hopkins in the 2000s, she has served as Director of Guide Services, Session Facilitator, and Research Coordinator involved with all the psilocybin studies and has conducted over 500 study sessions herself. She was also responsible for training and supervising session facilitators and as a teacher and mentor at the California Institute of Integral Studies in its Psychedelic-Assisted Therapies and Research Program, and conducts trainings for therapists as well. So Mary, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Appreciate it. Of course. And I've heard so many good things about you. And before we started the podcast, I mentioned I saw you on the stage at Psychedelic Science in Denver in June. I was curious, you know, we always like to ask our guests in their own words to tell us what first got them involved in your case in social work and then ultimately in in psychedelic research. Oh, sure. I can't say that I started college thinking I want to be a social worker. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I had a couple different areas that I decided to go into. And then I quickly realized that wasn't what I wanted. And when I was transferring my records from sociology, they accidentally put it as social work. So I saw that. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, you know what? That actually is more me. And so that's how I ended up being a social worker. (laughs) That's amazing. One of the few times I think a clerical error is positive. Exactly. And so that's how I became a social worker. And then do you want to walk us through, like, once you became a social worker, what was your career like? And then what led you to Hopkins and then ultimately, you know, working with Dr. Griffiths and others in, in psychedelic research? So. I've had a number of jobs since my graduation. Well, then I went back 10 years later and got my master's. I guess I'm just going to say this. When I was looking for work, a job, what was more important to me was not like necessarily what the job was, but it was, is this right for me at this right, at this time in this place? And so my first job was working actually a retirement community that was just opening up. And I was the social worker and activities director. And I was shepherding people moving from their homes of 50, 70 years, often losing their loved ones after 50, 60 years. So it was acclimating them to this new life. And it was quite intense for many of them. So I was there for a while at that. And then another area that I just fell into and I loved it, it was working at a a weight loss center. But I was doing behavior modification, and I had studied a lot of these alternative type of treatments, like guided imagery and visualization and all kinds of different things, that when I got this position, I did counseling, I had individual and group counseling, I was able to use these tools and found them very effective. So it was really exciting, these things that were just kind of a side interest of me, can't really say side interest because it was really who I am and wanted to be engaged in in this work. And so it was very rewarding. I ended up starting a children's group, weight loss group, 
I taught yoga. I taught nutrition. So I did that for a number of years, seven or eight years. And I loved that. And then before Hopkins, I was work. I had been home with my son. I wanted to be home with him for a number of years, which I did. And it was like the best thing ever. And then I got a job at his school when he was starting back. And I was a teaching assistant. I One year I was the guidance counselor at another school and I did substitute teaching, but that's what I was doing. And I loved that. And then I was in a meditation group and Bill Richards, who I know, you know, well, I've interviewed, was in the meditation group with me. And we had been in it for a couple of years. And after one of this would have been 1999, after one of the classes, he said, I remember it so well, it was a beautiful August evening and we stepped outside and it was beautiful outside. And and just sat down, he started telling me of this, that, you know, Hopkins was starting this, of what he, that he had done this, you know, back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And they always have two guides. Would I be interested in assisting him? He thought I would be good. And I didn't know psychedelics as the therapeutic use. And I only, you know, was familiar from growing up in the 70s, 60s, 70s, the recreational. And so I didn't know if I wanted the job. I loved what I was doing. And again, it wasn't, oh, it's Hopkins. Oh, it's this. It's a much, you know, better, more prestigious. It was, is this the right place for me to be for, you know, myself and for myself, which would in turn be the best for all. And so I really struggled with that, tried to have both jobs because they were part-time, but my principal was like, it's not going to work. And Anyway, I went back and forth to last minute and I never got a clear because I kept asking for help for an answer. I never got a clear answer, but there was something that my gut said to take it, which I did. And so that was 23 years ago. And I can tell you now, <laughs> do I believe these medicines have potential for healing, for therapeutic benefits? Without a doubt. And I could not have written a job description that was more in alignment with who I am and what, how I want to be spending my days. So there's such gratitude for that whole process and my time at Hopkins and it continues. That's incredible. I love, I love a lot of the themes you've mentioned there ranging from, you know, actually loving your work and asking the question of, is it the right place to be trying to put aside factors that I know our audience, including me, have have been distracted by over our careers like prestige you know those kind of things and instead you know listening to your to your gut as you mentioned and you know a theme that you've also shared is how much you've enjoyed many of the jobs you've had over the years from the weight loss therapy to to the teaching aid to now obviously the last 23 years at Hopkins and Bill Richards wonderful human so i like the serendipity of you both being in a meditation group together and leading to this this path, which is also a theme that comes up on Raise the Line. So in those 23 years, you've run hundreds of sessions. And I'm just curious, you know, you've seen how the space has evolved. What are some of like the lessons you've learned as a as a as a guy yourself? And you know, it's culminated obviously in that huge conference two months ago. We were both in Colorado with 12,000 attendees and a burgeoning field. I mean, there's so many psychedelic training groups at this point which we'll get into that process. But what are some of the key lessons or takeaways you've had over those 23 years? Well, one of the interesting things for me is that when I started at Hopkins, I was already in my mid-40s. And as I told you, I had already been on this path of what's right for me, these big 
life questions, you know, who am I? Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? And along quite a number of years before I joined Hopkins, actually decades, I, for me, knew what that was. And, and there are some very simple messages and truths, beliefs, philosophy, whatever you want to call it, that I took in. And at that time, I knew that that was why I'm here. That was the meaning of life. So there were no more questions on that. It was just this journey of how do I become more? These simple lessons, which simplicity is actually very complex. So what I found after years in Hopkins was that these same messages, truths, beliefs, philosophies that I had come to know was me or us, why we're here is exactly what I was seeing in these experiences. And it was incredible. And they are true. Authentic nature is love. And by love, I mean this connection and this interconnectedness that we all are to ourselves, to others, and to everything. That the present moment is all there is. That forgiveness, the importance of forgiveness is a key to happiness. That's what I have kept and keep finding. It's not that everyone gets all these messages at once or, or ever, but it's, it's not uncommon. And those are themes. And that was so powerful and so exciting. And that's, again, why it became so clear the importance of me being here, because it was so much of who I am and what I believed. And now these medicines, these substances can bring us to that place often so much quicker than anything else can. Those are incredible takeaways. And when we when we do a snippet of this podcast, I'm, I'm going to make sure we highlight what you've shared. Uh, and obviously themes that we've heard from other practitioners, people like Dr. Bit Yaden, who I know you've worked with, who comes from a psychiatry lens and you know has found this medicine as well. So uh, you know, I know it can be very draining to be a facilitator. This is something we've heard. How do you personally prepare for this? Because you've done hundreds of these sessions. And, and what advice do you have for our audience, many of whom may be interested in pursuing this as a, as a career. How do you prepare? How do you stay grounded yourself and uh, not trained? And then we'll get into the actual shortage of healthcare professionals required to do not only this work, but mental health in general. But yeah. Sure. And that's really important, as I think we all know. But do we all do it? And what does that mean? As best I can, I don't plan anything the night before and get to bed early when I can. So that definitely helps. I always before a session, I make sure that I've done something. I do something physical. I go for a walk. I'll do some yoga or, you know, something where I've been, have movement because you're sitting for so long. I eat a really big meal, oatmeal usually, because you may not have a meal forever for the whole day or for hours. But all of those things help to be more present in the session, but also to not have to be more prepared as far as taking less energy if you're not hungry or if you're not, you know, so tired of sitting. So I prepare in that way. And after a session, almost always, if I, if I can, but it's almost always before I get in my car to go home, I take a walk because I've been sitting all day, but also for me to take in the experience and just, you know, be by myself with it. So we actually have a pretty beautiful campus. There's beautiful trees and flowers and there's a little pond. And so I take about a half hour or so walk after. And then, well, we'll, we'll jump back. 
if we had time and if it was, you know, depending on the session, we will debrief with our other guide because a lot of things can come up from for ourselves to work with. So that's really important, taking care of yourself to express things that you have questions about or thoughts or, you know, uncertain about. And then I won't have, ideally for me, I like one session a week. I mean, because the day before I want to have, you know, the evening rest, the session itself, the day after they come in so that it wouldn't be a session day. But we went, you know, we've been busy at times. So there'll be two sessions a week, which is fine for a while. But when that continues, that's, I would rather have less just to have more because there's other things we're doing too. You know, that's not just that. But I'd never do three. Some people have. I just, I think that's, for me, that's too much to be present and to not overdo it. So those are some of the things. Yeah, that's extremely useful and very helpful. And obviously, we've heard from other Raiseline podcast guests about the need as a healthcare provider, or professional like yourself, to just take care of yourself, regardless whether it's you know a surgeon who wants to make sure they maintain flexibility, strength, because they're obviously in the OR for hours on end, to someone who's going through such as taxing emotional or spiritual experience that often these things can be. You know, I mentioned that you've trained therapists, you know, there's a massive shortage of healthcare professionals globally. And in mental health, it seems even worse, given the demands, especially post COVID, that have been placed in the field coincided with the fact that you know, we expect FDA approvals of MDMA and psilocybin therapies over the coming months and years. So we know there's a, th- a theme from psychedelic science was the projected shortfall of therapists. And, and you've even mentioned someone as skilled as yourself to, to maintain presence having to do maybe one, maybe two sessions a week. So there's a natural scaling issue with kind of the delivery of these therapies. What is your view on the actual shortage and how do we get more, how do we select for and then train more healthcare providers to become psychedelic assisted therapists? (laughs) That's the big question. And I mean, it is, and we know that. And, you know, a lot of people are looking at that because it's so limited now, obviously, because it's just, you know, allowed on in clinical trials. There are many training programs. I've been with CIS, their CPTR, Psychedelic Certificate Program. They were the first to start one, Janice Phelps, in 2016. And so now there's quite a few. And so, you know, they're offering trainings. So that's, you know, because there's so many more now that that's available. Although that's not my eyes sufficient. They also cost quite a bit. And it's so important to have diversity in who are practitioners, which we don't now. It's it's such a, you know, this has also been brought forward more and more. But, you know, we know most all of the clinical trials that have been done over all these last couple of decades are usually the white middle class, the, the providers or the guides are also that, not speaking other languages, you know, not being, have a diversity. And so that's another area that's so important. And as right now, that you know, as far as the government going forward, they're looking at all the guides being the licensed clinician, MD, MD, PhD. And they're even looking at possibly having the second guide is that. So I have a lot of concerns with that as I know many people have shared and do. In my view, there are so many more things to look at than just a licensed clinician. Sure, their training, their education, it can be very helpful, but there's a 
there's a number of licensed clinicians, MDs, PhDs that I wouldn't go to. And I would go to someone else, you know, a religious professional, chaplain. I mean, nurses, nurse practitioners, hospice care workers, providers. There's such a list of, and, and that's just professions that we know. But I mean, the underground, which is so difficult to figure out how to make use of, is such a wealth of providers and knowledge and skill. So it really is a demand to open the field up. I know Oregon has done that. I'm not, I can't say, you know, I, we don't know how their model is going to look going forward, but it's a step, but are they taking the proper channels? So I'll stop there and you can ask me more. Yeah, no, I love that you mentioned the diversity of types of session facilitators that that could be integral moving forward. I've definitely heard, you know, about, and we know there's studies about chaplains, you know, because a lot of this therapy is just, you know, having those skills, it seems of presence, patience, and things that that maybe those those programs or those fields really careers select for more than say medical school, which I can personally attest to does not select for, for some of this stuff. So maybe impatience in some ways. So. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. How do we, how do we bring that? I mean, think about who would you want as a guide? You know, you would want someone that speaks your language. You might not want someone that knows your culture. All of those things can just enhance the experience, but also make it more likely to be available to more people. And of course the language barrier. And then there's just the, you know, aside from all that, what kind of a, it's really, what kind of a person is the person being the guy, the facilitator? You look at everything. It's not just their license. It's, it's who they are. It's what they've done in their life experiences, their work career and their life career. How much work have they done on themselves? That is the most important, is being more and more clear, grounded, centered in who you are. It's a lifetime of work. It's not an, you know, ever done, at least in my case. <laughs> and I don't know anyone who it has been done. But, you know, who's the person? You know, do they have a ready smile? Do you feel comfortable with them? Do you feel not judged? I'm going to read this because I, I, had, I was looking at it the other couple, a little bit ago. But I don't know if you're familiar with the secret chief, Leo Zaff. He, he was back in the 50s, 60s. I, I don't know how long he went into but he is actually attributed with the book was called The Secret Chief. And when it came out by Myron Stoleroff, he at the time he wrote it was The Secret Chief because Leo Zeff was still alive. And so he didn't want to put him out because he became an underground therapist. And he it says more than anyone probably in the world really worked with these medicines, all the different ones when they were coming out and guided over 4000 people. And he was a psychologist, but this is, you know, what I think about. And, and when I look at another characteristic that's overlooked so much, it says, this is, this is Leo. It's rare in life to meet a person so engaging, so warm, so obviously kind that your heart automatically goes out to him first contact. Leo, it says Jacob, because that's the name he used, was such a person, completely unpretentious, tremendously enthused with life and excited about people. You you, he was hardly ever caught without an engaging smile. As soon as you were in his presence, you knew that he was your friend and he would do anything he could for you. And so, I mean, that's, that's somebody that I would want to look at, as, right? That we don't, 
bring forward when we're talking about who's a good guide. Yeah, that's an amazing description. Quite quite a high bar, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you've met many of you yourself seem to be in Dr. Richards as well. I, I'm I'm curious, you know, you've sat so many sessions. Are there any like specific experiences you've had, patients you remember, things that you've seen, positive and negative, that maybe influence how you practice, how you've practiced and where you think the field could go? Anything you want to share? I think that's one of the nice things we like about medicine is there's so many, you know, like people like Oliver Sacks have extrapolated themes in medicine based on specific patient anecdotes. Atul Gawande is another one. So anything that comes to mind for you? Oh, <laughs> there are so many. I mean, literally, there are so many that come to mind. I guess I'll take one of the themes, the messages that I talked about the present moment is all there is, which is such an important lesson. That's also one that's I don't hear it brought forward a lot because that's all we have. This is my beliefs, but the present moment is all we have. And if we can learn to live in the present moment more, it would be more living in alignment with who we are. I'm going to let that go. But as far as that, so many times sessions come to that point. People have that realization. But this was by far one of the most memorable, and I've had many, but it was a cancer patient, a young cancer patient. He was only 41, and he had terminal cancer. He was only given six to nine months to live. And he had a six and a nine-year-old, two six and nine-year-old boys and a wife. And he, as you can imagine, that age and being, you know, in such close, so close to, you know, probably dying, he just couldn't live his life with anything other than thinking every day, I'm not going to be here. How can I, what, what can I do to be here for my family, for my, for my boys? And just so entangled with this, you know, diagnosis and death. And he was such a, he was a really, he was actually really big. He played football. He was very much taking care of himself. Even in his illness, he was still very large. So he was just, he'd talk about his life as we do in our sessions, telling their life story. And he would, you know, be very proud of his life and his career. And then we got to the questions about his boys. He just broke down crying. And that's all he can think about. So he had a very long session. It went on actually for 12 hours, which is unusual, but we were going by weight and he had a high dose because he was quite, you know, large. His first part, he was very peaceful. He had full connection and was left a few hours. He got up and he thought, this is great. I'm doing great. It's over. Had the second part laid down, later told us this. It was horrific. He felt like he was being beaten and stomped and kicked like hell. He told us later that was he realized with his cancer. He didn't want to, but encouraged him to lay back down after he got up from that because that's the best way to go through, even when it's horrifically difficult. Sometimes they think sitting up will, you know, help. And sometimes it does for a minute, but it's really going back in. And very bravely he went back in. And so this was his second, third part. He's laying there and he'd been very tight and, you know, tensed and And then all of a sudden you see this little smile to begin. And then you hear this little bit of a laughter and then more laughter. And then just, you could see and hear this joy. So this is what he told us after what he was experiencing. He had an image and this is what he called it, his cosmic gumball machine. And instead of gumballs, they were moments. And so he takes out the first one and He's holding this moment in his hand. And of course, he's like, okay, I want to know about my cancer. 
I want to know what's going to happen. I want to know when I'm going to die. And as he wrote this up, and I actually read it to someone later with our team, they said, that's a physicist speaking. You know, sometimes you have these downloads and these experiences. And he realized in asking this question that this happens in seconds, that every answer is possible. And so there's like, there's no way you can know the future. And, and it's no, there's no way to answer that. So all you have is this moment. So why would I put cancer and death in this moment? So the next gumball comes out and it's his first son. And she says, I'm going to put in what I want. And he put in this big yellow sunshine, green grass, took out the next one, his next son, same thing. And he went away from that session and we kept in touch with him and his wife. She's given permission to share that the minute he went home, he was able to disentangle his cancer from his boys, from his wife, from his life now, and see his boys as they are his wife not as his cancer and his fear and and the moment of making every moment you know living as much as he could it was profound it was beautiful he disentangled he had a, he had a vine after that gumball machine he had a vine that he just kept seeing untangle 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 so it was again it was this it was disentangling we get so caught up this is all i am this cancer, you know, this diagnosis, this identity, this whatever it be, this depression, this this eating disorder, this is who I am. And we get so stuck in that that we can't see anything broader than that. And so we begin to disentangle and we'll wait a minute, we're this and we're this and we're this and we're this. And then you have more space to open up and see the capacities and and who we are and what we can go for and work with these other things to balance them more. Wow. That's an incredibly vivid and helpful. Isn't it? <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I hope at some point, if you haven't already, you, you know, whatever you're willing to share or you and your team, even having these analogies, this, this language can be helpful, even putting it into like a book format or training. I'm sure you do that in CIIS. I want to be aware of your time because I know you have a hard stop. So, so my last question for you is, is two parts. It's, it's just, what advice would you give to our, our audience about meeting their their careers and you know it could be psychedelic assisted therapy or not and then is there anything else you want to get across to our audience that we didn't get a chance to get to so far so you mean as far as career any career any what anybody wants yeah any career advice most of our audience are healthcare professionals or students and so anything you'd like to share with them well i mean for me it's what i shared earlier is you know, why are you doing this? You know, who are you? You know, people ask me and often with our research assistants, they come in, I say, you know, what, tell me what you're thinking about. What are the areas? And, and then you, you know, you look at what, 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 what's making them smile? What's bringing them joy? What makes them talk? You know, when they get to a certain place, you know, it's this, it's policy or it's guiding or it's, you know, all the different facets that you can be in this field. And, and which is it you, which is it not what you think you should do or what's going to make you the most money, but what is it that brings you joy, that gives you excitement? That's what you want to look at because that to me is who you are. And that's where you're going to do the best for your being the best self and being the best for others. And, you know, it takes practice. It takes discipline. It takes going inward. It takes intention. You know, I, I use this. We have to have intention. What do you want? And then you have to pay attention to that 
And then you have to take action. It, it's it's not, you know, oh, this is what I want, or I'm going to go. It's it's very much a discipline that's the more you do that, the more you're going to be aware and pay attention to what you want and, and how to do that. It's not always easy, but. Oh, I, I love that framework of intention, attention, and action and rinse and you yeah. Know, repeat. Yeah. I thought of that recently when I was teaching. I like that too, <laughs> but it's true. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Great. We can't just have one without yeah. the other. Yeah, no, I can, yeah. I can, you know, my personal experience is I can validate what you're sharing there. Anything else you want to share with our, our audience before we let you go for the day? I guess just why we're here, you know, we're here for each other. We're here for each other to show each other. This is, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it's, it's a very simple, one of my favorites. I mean, there's thousands, but this volunteer said, we're just all here together, bringing each other back home. It really is about who are you? That's what these, that's what they show us. That's what I mean about what brings you joy. Who are you? You know, each person that comes in is unique and individual. And so who are you? What is it that's not working? What is it that you want? And how can we work to get there? Who are you? Right. And the more that we pay attention to that, go deep inside of ourselves, the more it's going to become clear. And and we're just here for each other. But when we when we when we go inside ourselves to see what it is that is right for us, that is what's to me what's going to be the best for everyone. And we're here just together, bringing each other to this place of showing each other who we are. Wow, I love that, and that's a great great question to end on. The who are you? If you're the facilitator or a friend or just other fellow human. Or who am I is, you know, Maharishi always repeated, you know, just keep asking yourself and meditating on who am I. Right. That could be your only, right? Yeah. Mary, I've heard so many good things about you from many of the people we've had on, and I'm really glad we were able to make this work. I can see why they speak so highly of you. I, I would love to meet you in person when I'm back in Baltimore at some point. But for now, you know, this has been a very valuable episode of Raise the Line for our audience, because I think many of them can take things you've shared, not just for if they pursue careers in psychedelic assisted therapy, but really any sort of bedside manner. I think some of those things are timeless that you've just shared. So thank you for taking the time to be with us on the podcast and more importantly, for the work that you've been doing over the past several decades to, to help so many people around you. Well, thank you so much Shiv, for interviewing me, talking to me and letting me talk about what's important to me. <laughs> Totally, anytime. And with that, I'm Shiv Guglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. Thank you.